Well, I'd like to invite you to join me in Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17. As a church, we ordinarily preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we have been going through the book of Genesis. Well, in the sequential preaching through the books of Bible, sometimes you come to passages of Scripture that we might be otherwise inclined to avoid, at least in the public discourse of God's Word for one reason or another, and yet by preaching verse by verse, we are exclaiming one to another that every word of God is true and profitable and necessary for God's people. And so while Genesis 17 may include content that we may not want to dwell upon, we want to see in Genesis 17 that without this chapter, we would not understand a great deal of the Bible. Without this chapter, some of the most essential and profound sections of the Bible become meaningless to us. And more than that, entire books and passages of the New Testament become confusing or worse, misinterpreted because we don't understand Genesis chapter 17. And so while we might be tempted to shy away from such chapters in the public preaching of God's Word, we would do so at the expense of a rich understanding of God's Word. And so with that being said, if you have found your way to Genesis chapter 17, I'd like to invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. Beginning in verse 9, the Word of God says, God also said to Abraham, As for you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring, whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. May God be praised through the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, last week we considered Genesis 17 verses 1 through 8. And there we saw God Almighty remind Abraham of his covenant promises and his power and faithfulness to keep those promises. There was this reaffirmation of God's promises made previously to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then 13 and 14 and in Genesis 15. That was accompanied there by this change of name. You will no longer be called Abram or father, exalted father, but you will be known as Abraham, father of a multitude. This name change indicated the promise that God had given to Abram that many offspring, many multitude of nations would come from Abraham. 
And through him, God would establish an old covenant people who were descendants of Abraham according to the flesh. And out of that old covenant people, there would be one offspring, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, who would rise up and be a deliverer for God's people who would bring blessings to the nations. We noted last week that these words to Abraham come to him 13 years after his, his sin with Hagar as he sought to birth a son of his flesh through her rather than waiting upon the promises of God. He depended upon his flesh rather than depending upon God's sovereign power in his old age. And that coming in the wake of the covenant ceremony that God had given to Abraham. We read in Genesis chapter 15 that there was a, a covenant ratification ceremony there where God had Abram bring these animals and divide them in half and create a pathway between them. And in Abram's mind, he's immediately thinking that he and God are going to walk together through this pathway, but God instead in the form of a smoking fire pot and torch, passes unilaterally alone through these divided animals, invoking curses upon himself for this covenant. God is saying there that he alone unilaterally will sovereignly accomplish that which he has promised to Abraham. So God's covenant with Abraham is clearly gracious. God has assured Abraham that he will fulfill his covenant promises because of his own character and by his own power. This is what God had reminded Abraham of in verses 1 through 8 of Genesis 17. But now, as we come to Genesis 17 verses 9 through 14, we see a continuation of God's speech. He has promised Abraham that by his own power he is going to uphold his promises. But now God outlines Abraham's obligations. There is something for Abraham to do. And while this covenant is indeed gracious, there is a work for Abraham to perform he and his offspring. That's why it says in verse 9, God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations are to keep my covenant. Here there is a demand for obedience. There is responsibility on the part of Abraham. Ongoing participation in the covenant blessings promised to Abraham depends upon keeping the sanctions that God placed upon Abraham and his offspring. And it entails a call to holiness living distinctly from the world. The command given to Abraham in verse 1 we saw last week was to live in my presence and be blameless. This is the call of obedience that is placed upon Abraham's life because of God's covenant blessings upon him. But now as we continue God's speech in verse 9, we see that there is a specific positive covenant sanction given to Abraham and that is circumcision. And it's through this command of circumcision that God creates a sign for his covenant promises to Abraham. He demands obedience from Abraham and his offspring. And he marks Abraham and his offspring off as the people of God distinct from the world. 
And such are to be the people of God. God's people are supposed to be distinct and separate from the rest of the world. This is God's call upon Abraham and all who are his offspring, whether by natural descent or by faith. They're to be distinct and separate from the rest of the world, living in his presence and blameless before his sight. We've seen God operating in the life of Abraham chapter after chapter that Abram is supposed to be trusting in the provisions of God rather in the, than in the provisions of the flesh. He's supposed to be trusting in the word of God and his promises rather than that which makes sense to his natural senses. He's to be submitting to God's lordship rather than his own desires for his life. And ultimately, Abraham is to be hoping in God's promises of redemption from the fall. This is God's call upon Abram's life to be distinct and separate from the rest of the world. And through circumcision, God marks him off. Just as all of God's people are to be marked off as the people of God by a covenant sign. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 17 this morning, there's just one thing that I want you to take note of if you're following along and taking notes, and it's this. God marks his people off from the world by a covenant sign. God marks his people off from the world by covenant sign. Now, there's certainly other things and specific things that we want to talk about this morning, but that's the one heading under which we're going to discuss this covenant of circumcision given to Abraham. God marks his people off from the world by covenant sign. Now, in order for us to understand how it is that God does mark his people off by covenant sign, it would help us to refresh our memory of the things we've learned in Genesis so far regarding covenant theology. We've been studying Genesis for a while now, and we've seen the covenant made with Adam in the garden. We've seen the covenant of works there, and we've also seen the Noahic covenant, the covenant made with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. But we remember from there that a covenant is simply a formal ratification or a formal establishing of a relationship, sometimes between two people and sometimes between God and man. Now, for our sake this morning, we are discussing a relationship between God and man in which God alone sets the terms of the agreement. He is superior to us, he is our creator, and he has the right over his creation to do and demand as he pleases. So then we see that this is a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship. God is formalizing his relationship with Abraham in a covenant through sanctions, threats, and penalties that are imposed upon him to ensure covenant fidelity. Now, one of the things that we've seen through these covenants that God establishes with mankind is that there's these various kingdoms or realms or spheres that these covenants will um, rule over. For example, we saw in the covenant of works that the creation of God is governed by this covenant of works. All men are under Adam as a federal head for the covenant of works. Adam broke that and now we all experience sin and the effects of the fall. The Noahic covenant, the covenant made with Noah, is the same way. It governs creation, but not in the same way as the covenant of works. Whereas sin was brought into the world by the covenant of works, 
in the covenant made with Noah, God promises to sustain his creation in order to accomplish his redemptive purposes. He had promised the seed of the woman, and through the seed of the woman, God is going to bring redemption. But if mankind continues in the sin that brought the judgment of God and the flood upon them, then God must covenant with them to overlook their sin for a time that they might receive the redemption that God has promised. This is the covenants that govern creation. But now we're beginning to see that the kingdom of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, were also governed by covenants. This begins with the Abrahamic covenant. We've seen that this covenant establishes a particular people who physically descended from Abraham, who would be God's old covenant people. The Mosaic covenant is, in essence, an, uh, an expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. We read in Exodus chapter 2, God hears the people of Israel's groaning as they're in Egyptian slavery. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God, based on his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, delivers the people of God out of Egyptian bondage into the promised land. But before he does, he brings them to Mount Sinai to grant a covenant to them. And it said there in Exodus chapter 19, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. These are the words that you were to say to the Israelites. Those who are descendants by blood from Abraham are entered into covenant through Moses at Mount Sinai with God. And so the Mosaic Covenant, given at Sinai, expands the Abrahamic Covenant and teaches them very specifically what it means to live in the presence of God and be blameless. That one verse command of Genesis 17 verse 1 is expanded out in the law of Moses so that they know what it means specifically to obey God. That certainly has continued in the Davidic covenant with the promise of a king there in Genesis 17 will be fulfilled through David. And so we talk about these covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant in an umbrella term, the old covenant in contrast to the new covenant. That's why Jeremiah prophesies in Jeremiah 31, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So we have these distinct covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. And the old covenants are not administrations of the covenant of grace. They're distinct covenants that serve to point us to our need for a new covenant. And they serve as a means through which the new covenant and the messianic new covenant head would come. And so the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of promise. It's a covenant of guardianship. Um, that is providing a covenant mediator. And so all the promises of God to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, the land, the people, the blessings, they point us to greater realities in the new covenant. So as we come now to Genesis 17, we're going to see that God imposes covenant sanctions upon this covenant that he has made with Abraham. Now 
this is a demand for obedience from Abraham. Verse 1 says to live in my presence and be blameless. Verse 14 says that to not take this covenant sign is to be in disobedience. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, then a man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so we understand from this passage that God is saying to Abraham, the way that you know that you are in this covenant is by believing my promises and responding in a life of obedience, keeping my commands. In other words, God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, yes, my covenant is gracious. Yes, my promises are gracious. But now in verse 9, God says, in order to ensure that my covenant promises are kept to you, he says, as for you, you are to keep my covenant. You are, he imposes these sanctions, and the particular sanction that God imposes upon him is that of circumcision. This is the act of obedience that Abraham and his offspring are to keep. And failure to keep this in obedience would result in disinheritance of the promises. One author summarizes, ongoing participation in the blessings of Abraham's covenant depended upon obedience to a positive law, that is to circumcision. Now he also goes on to note that circumcision is not uh, known to us by nature. It is an arbitrary command given for this specific covenant. God could have given any command of obedience to Abraham that he wanted, but God chose circumcision for the sign of the covenant for reasons we're going to see in a few moments. Again, the same author summarizes, circumcision was not a moral issue. It was a positive law that could be and was removed later in history. A failure to circumcise prior to this command was in no way a form of disobedience to God by anyone, but circumcision was added to the covenant as a positive law, deriving its obligation purely from the divine authority of God. And so God supernaturally and sovereignly imposes this obligation upon Abraham. And as long as the Abrahamic covenant was in function, then this command was binding upon all of those who were in that covenant. This is the command that they were given to keep. Verse 10. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. And so now as we move into this covenant sign, we need to establish exactly what circumcision is. Well, you can hear some of the meaning in our English word circumcision. You hear in the word there the word circumference, the distance around a circle or a cylinder, and the word incision meaning to cut. And so the word circumcision means to cut around the male reproductive organ so as to remove a part of the flesh. And this is the way in which Abraham, his descendants, and all of those who were purchased into his household were to show their covenant obedience and belief in the promises of God. This is the permanent sign given to secure this permanent covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Now God says here that this is a sign of the covenant. In verse 11 it's de described as a covenant Sign. Well, God makes all sorts of covenants throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and then ultimately in the New Testament. And these covenants are ordinarily accompanied by 
signs. If you've been attending with us on Wednesday nights, several months ago we walked through the ordinances of the New Testament and described them as signs of the new covenant. Well, in the same way, God gives pictures of old covenant promises. These are visual pictures of God's promises to man. These are dramatizations, a playing out of God's covenant for us to observe. They're signs and symbols pointing pointing to realities beyond themselves, confirming and reassuring us of God's faithfulness. And we receive them as an expression of our faith in God's promises. One such covenant sign that we've seen is in the Noahic covenant. When God made a covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, he said he will establish the rainbow and the clouds as a sign of his covenant never to destroy the world again. Well, in the same way, the covenant of circumcision, the sign of circumcision, points us to a promise of God. And without that promise of God... The sign of circumcision, just like the rainbow, is meaningless. The object has no meaning without God giving the doctrinal significance to us. If God had not said, I'm not going to destroy the world again by a flood, then the rainbow in the cloud would be meaningless to you and I. In the same way, if God did not say to Abraham, I'm promising you an offspring and a land and blessings through that offspring, then the work of circumcision, the sign of circumcision, would have been completely meaningless to Abraham. But as God gives a promise in his word, he also gives a sign to remind us of that promise and explain the connection between the sign and the promise. But these signs are also seals of God's promise. Seals confirm or reassure God's promises to us. You see, for Noah and for every human being thereafter, as we see a rainbow in the clouds, we are reminded that it is God's promise to us that he will never again destroy the earth by a flood. But we also ought to be reminded that God is seeing the same rainbow and that we know in his goodness he is reminded that he will never destroy the earth by a flood. We know that God sees that rainbow and is reminded of his promise never to destroy the world again. In the same way, God looks upon the circumcision of Abraham that he has received as a sign by faith and it has sealed God's promises Abraham. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. He says, what, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Verse 11 says, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. And so Abram receives this sign as a seal of God's righteousness for him. He believes God's promises. It's credited to him as righteousness. And God gives this sign of circumcision not only as a sign to Abraham, but as a seal of his promises confirming the promise to Abraham by faith. And so we see that this sign of the Abrahamic covenant, this sign of circumcision was first to be an act of obedience of Abraham to God. 
but it's also to be a confirmation of God's covenant faithfulness. And it's a sign to Abraham to point him to greater spiritual realities. There's a sign on the one hand to Abraham as he looks upon the mark that God has put in his flesh. He is reminded that he is consecrated, that God's mark is upon him, and that he is hoping in God for the fulfillment of his promises and at the same time God is looking upon this mark and remembering his covenant in the same way as in the book of Exodus God promises the people of Israel on the night of their exodus on the night of the institution of the Passover that he will pass through the land of Egypt it says in Exodus he will pass through the land of Egypt on the night on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt both people and animals I am the Lord, I will execute judgments against the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so this, in the same way, circumcision is a sign to the Lord to remind him to bless Abraham with with a multitude of offspring. It is so that God would not forget his promises. Now, it certainly is not that God would forget or that he has some sort of amnesia or forget the promises. But God has established here a permanent sign between him and Abraham. And I want to walk through this briefly, I hope. Uh, that this permanent mark in the flesh, this mark of circumcision, signifies four things for Abraham. I was able to, as a good Baptist preacher, alliterate them even. So if you're following along and taking notes, we want to see that first, circumcision is a sign of surrender. It's a sign of surrender. Abraham is marked off as the people of God and he embraces this mark of circumcision as a mark belonging as he belongs to God. Imagine the faith that it took for a 99 year old Abraham to receive the mark of circumcision in his flesh. He truly believed the promises of God and by faith received this mark as an act of surrender and as an act of belonging to God. He marked himself as a sign and a reminder to maintain covenant obedience and to believe the promises of God. This coming in the wake of his sin with Hagar. He tried to go around the promises of God and conceive a child with her by his flesh in his own power. And so this mark would be a reminder that he has surrendered himself, body and soul, to God and that he would wait upon God's promises. This would restrain any efforts in the flesh or of sexual immorality for him to secure the promises of God to him. Analogously, Every married person in this room likely wears a wedding band upon their hands who remind themselves, in part, that they have entered into covenant union with another person, that they belong to another, that they have surrendered their lives to another person. Well, in the same way, Abraham receives the mark of circumcision in his flesh as a solemn reminder that he belongs to God alone. He has surrendered himself. Second, it's a sign of status. This marked him off as belonging to God. He is included in the covenant people of God. This will be a mark in his flesh that was readily identifiable. This marked him off as a one God man. 
Remember the promise that God gave to Abram is, I will be your God and you will be my people. So Abraham here has marked himself off as belonging to God, just as your wedding ring marks you off as a one-woman man. So circumcision marked Abram off as a one-God man. He's cut out, marked off from the world, called to purity and holiness. You see, the removal of the foreskin symbolized the purification and removal of flesh needed for the establishment of a covenant relationship between a holy God and an unholy people. There was something in the way. There was sinful flesh that needed to be removed. Abram needed to be purified in a sense to come before God. And so in this, Abram is called to a life of holiness, believing in the promises of God and committing to obedience to his commands. In the same way as the people of God, this sign was to be as a perpetual sign, generation after generation. Father would pass this sign on to son, and son would pass it on to grandson. And each generation would receive this sign in their flesh as a sign that they belong to God by faith in the promises that were given to Abraham. That they believed in the coming seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You see, there's a reason that circumcision is a covenant sign that is intimately tied to reproduction and fertility. You see, the covenant is symbolized here by God's decree. It symbolizes in the male's reproductive organs the covenant that God has made. Through you and your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's why it's with Abram's newly marked reproductive organ that he would sire a covenant child. It is through this sign that Isaac would be born to him. Every male in Israel, every person who was an offspring of Abraham by nature, by the flesh, could hardly engage in reproductive activity or change their children's diaper, so to speak, without being reminded of God's promises to Abram and his offspring that one child one day would come who would redeem them from their sin. It is a sign of their status as the people of God. But it's also a sign of our severance. It is representative of what we deserve before God. It is a declaration of judgment upon the sin. Sin deserves the tearing of the flesh and the shedding of blood. There's something analogous here to the covenant ceremony that God instituted in Genesis 15. Just as the animals are divided asunder, the breaking of the covenant deserves death and bloodshed. That's why he says in verse 14, If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off. From his people, he has broken my covenant. Do you see the play on words here? If your foreskin is not cut off, you will be cut off. In other words, if you prove to not walk with me in integrity and prove to be a covenant breaker instead, you will face the consequences of the covenant. If you choose not to receive this sign in your flesh, then you will receive the penalty that your sin deserves in your body. 
To not consider your condition before God is to be cut off from God yourself. It is a sign of our severance from God, the sentence of judgment that our sin has earned us in the flesh. But finally, it's a sign to us of our salvation. Certainly, this mark in the flesh doesn't produce a salvation, but rather it points us to our need of salvation and a work of salvation that God alone can do for us. The analogy of circumcision shows up again later in the Bible, particularly in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, we read, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. You see, we read in the book of Deuteronomy as God calls them to covenant faithfulness, they're called to circumcise their hearts, not their flesh, knowing that they need new hearts to be changed and transformed, that they might be obedient to God. This is a sign to them that ultimately a mark in their flesh is not enough to reconcile them to their God. They need their hearts to be circumcised. They need their fleshly desires and their sin to be cut away from them that they might be reconciled to God. There's a spiritual reality in view here. That's why in the New Testament we read in Romans 4 that this was symbolic of Abram's saving faith. He believed God and it was counted unto unto him in righteousness and he received the circumcision in his heart. Romans 2 says the same thing. That the circumcision of the flesh is symbolic of an inner purification needed for us to come before a holy God. I think this is further signed to us in the fact that this would be uh, performed on the eighth day. Now certainly there, I think, is a medical explanation for this. Not that Moses knew that, but God certainly did years ancient time, in ancient times. This is, has proven to be, by medical studies, the optimal time for infants to have medical procedures. Naturally, in their flesh, it's not safe until after eight days. But God did not tell this to Moses. Rather, he indicated that this should be performed on the eighth day by his eternal wisdom. But the meaning here is not primarily medical, but rather spiritual. I think it, one, is an indication that from the very beginning of a boy's life or a man's life, he he is to be consecrated over to God, that his life belongs to God. But I think the eighth day, more than that, is symbolic in that it is a symbol of recreation and of new life. We've spoken a lot about Noah this morning. How many people were brought onto the ark with Noah? There were eight people saved on the ark, symbolic of new life after the flood. In the same way, many of the feasts in the Old Testament, particularly the day of Pentecost, is celebrated on the eighth day. It is a day of resurrection, a day of recreation. Jesus, in this way, was also resurrected on the eighth day. Uh, He went through an entire week plus one, and so being buried on the Sabbath, he was raised on the first day of the week, which is the eighth day, as a symbol of new life and of resurrection and so this symbol of being circumcised on the eighth day points to i think the need of the circumcision of the heart to receive new life to receive new birth to receive regeneration 
And so we've seen this morning then that the act of circumcision is a sign of surrender. It's a sign of status. It's a sign of severance and a sign of salvation. But we want to note now that under the new covenant, this sign has passed away. There is now a new initiating oath sign for the new covenant. Circumcision being a positive law directly connected to the old covenant. With the passing of the old covenant, there is now a new covenant with a new covenant sign. This is why all throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul can say things like, both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. There's an old covenant sign connected to the old covenant, and there's a new covenant sign connected to the new covenant. And that new covenant sign, which initiates a person into the new covenant, is that of baptism. And in the same way as circumcision, it points to cleansing and forgiveness. It points to our needs before God. It points to our surrender of our lives before God. As a person is baptized by immersion under the water, they are surrendering themselves to follow Jesus and to walk in newness of life. It is a mark of their status in the world that they are marked off as the people of God. They are no longer who they once were, but they have embraced a new covenant community. They've embraced the church and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have a new status. But baptism also, in the same way as circumcision, marks off. It is a sign to us of our severance from God. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 that we're united with Jesus in His death. Jesus bore in His body the penalty that was reserved for us. He bore the death that we deserve. So in this way, baptism is a sign of our separation from God. But ultimately... It is a sign of our salvation. It is a sign that we can be reunited with God by faith in Christ. That truly we can say, He is our God and we are His people. Not by the works of our flesh, but because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so baptism in this way has replaced circumcision as a new covenant sign. Because all of the promises of God are ours, not because of the deeds that we have done in our flesh, but because of our union with Jesus Christ. Ours are the adoption and the glorification and the justification and the sanctification. All the blessings of God promised to us in the Scripture are secured to us because we are united with Jesus by baptism. So the question then becomes this morning, who then should the new covenant sign be applied to? In other words, who should be baptized? Well, circumcision, if I could draw an analogy from circumcision as a covenant sign, marked off the people of the old covenant. It was applied to Abraham, his children, and all males in his household. But generation after generation, the covenant sign was applied to each male on the eighth day. Not so much because of his relationship to his father before him, but because of his relationship with Abraham as one of Abraham's offspring. 
And so likewise, the new covenant sign of baptism should be applied only to those who have a relationship with the new covenant head, Jesus Christ. The new covenant sign ought not to be applied to children of believers because they have a relationship with the believing Father, but because they embrace a relationship with Jesus by faith. Therefore, they are marked off as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and God's new covenant people by believers' baptism. And so while we respect our Presbyterian brothers who would baptize their children because they are, as they would describe them, covenant children, we believe that they misunderstand and misapply the sign of circumcision and the sign of baptism in the New Testament. The sign of circumcision was not applied to boys eight days old because they had a circumcised father. But the sign was applied to boys eight days old because they were an offspring naturally from Abraham. They were circumcised because they were connected to the covenant head that God had made this covenant with. They are connected to Abraham. Well, in the same way, we should not baptize children because they have believing and baptized fathers. We should baptize them because they have a connection to Jesus Christ, the new covenant head. Just as children were connected to Abraham in the Old Testament, once a child becomes connected to Jesus Christ by faith in his atoning death and work on the cross, so then we connect them with Christ through baptism. So as we close and try to apply what God has shown us through circumcision and through Genesis 17, there's two things that I want to highlight for us this morning. First is this. We are the people of God marked off from the world. Therefore, we ought to live in holiness. Dear Christian, when you were baptized, you were stating to everyone involved and everyone that you would encounter thereafter that you are surrendering your life, body, and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. You were saying to the world that your sin deserved judgment, but you found redemption and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have now been bought with a price, and you belong to Him. That's why the Apostle Paul is able to say in Philippians 3, we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. And he goes on to call the Philippian church unto holiness, to pursue righteousness, to live as a distinct people in the world. You, dear Christian, are marked off as the people of God who worship God, glory in Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. You have been recipients of the circumcision of the heart, the circumcision not made with hands that Paul speaks about in Colossians 2. You have been changed, taken. God has taken your heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. He has given you new wills, new affections, new desires that are purified from the desires of the flesh. In this way, your flesh is being cut off and you are being sanctified and purified before God. Let us not seek our joy in land or people or in the things of the world. Rather, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we await the promises of God that are pointed to in the Abrahamic covenant. That is, that God would be our God and we would be His people for all eternity.
But I would remind you, dear Christian, not only is it a call for you to, to wait and to live in light of the presences of, presence of God, but to live in holiness as the people of God marked off from the world. It is a call to you to live in daily obedience, no matter how hard or difficult that might seem. My challenge to you this morning would be whatever hard thing you believe God is calling you to do, whether some act of obedience or whether some crucifixion of some deed of the flesh, whatever command that feels to you to be costly to your flesh, the call to you from this passage is to die to yourself and to cut it off for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. I dare say it will not be as painful as Abraham at 99 years old without hospital, without anesthesia, in obedience to God. He was circumcised by faith in Christ Jesus. And so, dear Christian, whatever sin you are struggling to crucify, whatever act of obedience you are struggling to to engage in. It will not be as difficult to you as the act that Abram committed, the act of obedience that he committed at 99 years old. We are called to put sin to death. We're called to pursue obedience because we are circumcised in our hearts. We have experienced the cutting away of the defilement of the flesh and the cleansing by Christ's blood. That's why we read in our scripture reading this morning, Colossians 2, we read there, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh, the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism and you, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so dear Christian, live as those who were marked off uh, from the world, live as holy before God, live in His presence, and be blameless. But the second thing that I would highlight for us this morning is that Jesus was cut off for our sake, that we might be reconciled to God. It's interesting to me that in the Gospel according to Luke, that the name given to Jesus was given to him on the day of his circumcision. We read in Luke 2 verse 21, when the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. We know elsewhere in the Gospels that this name Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. And it seems that in Luke 2, with the circumcision of Jesus, that there is a foreshadowing by which He will accomplish the salvation of His people. He will save His people by being circumcised. He will save His people by being cut off from the covenant community and cut off from the covenant God. As He hang upon the cross of Calvary, Jesus was cut off from God. And He cries out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And He was forsaken forsaken, cut off from God, that you and I might be reconciled to Him. He was cut off from God and treated as the one who broke the covenant, who was not circumcised in His flesh. Jesus was treated as a covenant breaker so that you and I, we covenant breakers, might be treated as covenant keepers. We who deserve to be cut off from God are reconciled to Him, brought near, and we call Him our God because Jesus was cut off in the flesh for us. 
Do you know this salvation? Do you know this reconciliation with God this morning? Do you see your sin as worthy of being cut off and separated from God? Do you see it as the the, the means from which you are separated from God and in desperate need of salvation? The Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary gave His life cut off from God but was raised again on the third day as a vindication of His righteousness and His covenant keeping so that He would secure for us eternal life and all the promises of God. Would you look to Him in faith? Would you cry out to Him for salvation? Would you believe upon the promises of God that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life? This is the salvation that God promises to us through Jesus who was cut off for our sake. And so dear church, as we close, we have come to see in Genesis 17 how vitally important this chapter is for our understanding of the rest of the New Testament. We understand the the new covenant of grace and our relationship to Christ all the more because we understand what circumcision was to Abraham. And we understand especially that we have been marked off as the people of God by faith. God has placed His covenant sign upon us and has called us to walk in newness of life. Let us go to Him in prayer and ask for help to do this. Lord, we come to you this morning in awe of your word, in awe of your goodness to us. Lord, we confess that this seems to us a a strange thing, uh, that this seems to us an odd thing, even a difficult thing to talk about. But Lord, we see your wisdom in it. We see your grace in it. We see that you were pointing Abraham and all who would look to his offspring, Christ Jesus, by faith. You were pointing us to greater realities. Lord, help us to embrace them by faith. Grant us eyes to see them and arms to embrace them. Father, we pray that you would help us to live as the people of God marked off from the world, that we would live distinct and pure lives, that the sign of baptism that has been applied to us would be a reminder of us that we have surrendered our lives, body and soul, to Christ, that we belong to you for an eternal salvation. Father, for the one who does not know Christ, we pray that your spirit would work the circumcision of the heart in them that you would do for them what they cannot do for themselves. There is no work of the hands. There's no circumcision of the the hands that would secure your eternal blessings. Lord, they need to be circumcised in the heart. God, do that for them by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.